Let's open God's Word this morning to the book of Hosea. We will read Hosea chapter 14. Before we do, I remind you of the broad context. The book of this book begins with God calling the prophet Hosea to take a wife of whoredoms. That's chapter 1, verse 2. In obedience to God, Hosea did just that. He married a woman by the name of Gomer. And she did prove herself to be unfaithful. She committed adultery. But then God also called the prophet Hosea to take his wife back. That's chapter 3, verse 1. Then said the Lord unto me, Go yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress. And in all this, there was a picture for the nation of Israel of their own spiritual unfaithfulness to God and God's covenantal faithfulness to them. So we bear that in mind as we read the final chapter of the book, Hosea chapter 14. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto Him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, Ye are our gods. For in Thee the fatherless findeth mercy. I will heal their, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For mine anger is turned away from me, from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine, the scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things. Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 33. Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Of how many parts doth true of the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God 
through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to His glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. As I often do, I begin with a question this morning. And I preface this question by saying I wish I could ask it to each one of you personally, individually, in a private conversation this morning. Child of God, what is the spiritual orientation of your heart this morning? Is it turned toward your God? Or is it turned in the direction of sin? Understand, I'm not asking the question what whether your life from an external point of view is turned toward God, but I'm asking about your heart. Is it inclined toward your Redeemer or is it pointed in the direction of sin? The sad reality is that there are times as God's people that our hearts are turned in the wrong direction. We have our backs towards God as it were. And it's for this very reason that we recognize the importance of the Word of God that calls us to return unto Him. And we recognize the necessity of a sermon like this morning which sets before us the doctrine of conversion. For even if we can honestly answer before God this morning, my heart is in the right direction. I trust we all recognize that that is not always the case. That there are times that our hearts are inclined toward sin and thus we need to hear this Word of God to return unto Him. That is, we need to consider the truth of conversion as it's taught to us in Lord's Day 33. For that is indeed the fundamental truth, the main doctrine that's on the foreground in Lord's Day 33. Question 88 begins, of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? And then it proceeds to give us various elements that make up a true conversion. It breaks them up into two broad headings, a negative heading and a positive heading. Negatively, it consists of the mortification of the old man, positively of the quickening of the new man. And then the catechism proceeds to break down each of those into an attitude of the heart and a corresponding life that flows from that attitude so that from a negative point of view, the mortification of the old man includes a sincere sorrow of heart that we've provoked God by our sins. And then the corresponding life that more and more we hate and flee from those sins. And then we see the same pattern with regard to the positive, the quickening of the new man. There's an attitude of the heart, a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and a corresponding life that with love and delight we live according to the will of God in all good works. Those are the elements of conversion. 
And it's important that we recognize that for the catechism to list them in that particular order is not for the catechism to try to give us a sequential order of this is how it goes in time for the child of God when he turns to God. Simply giving us the different elements. But for the sake of clarity, for the sake of simplicity, what we are going to do this morning is take the different elements that are found in Lord's Day 33 and reorganize them so that they do more accurately follow our own experience and how it goes for us, what it looks like when we turn away from sin and turn back unto God as a part of true conversion. And we take that approach to help us, to guide us when our hearts are inclined in the wrong direction, when our lives are pointed down the path of sin. This sermon is meant to help us to guide us in turning from that sin back to our God as a part of true conversion. So this morning, let's consider Lord's Day 33 using as our theme, conversion, returning unto the Lord our God. First, we'll look at the sorrowful confession of conversion. Second, the joyful life of conversion. And then third, the God-given fruits of conversion. The sorrowful confession, the joyful life, and the God-given fruit. This morning we read from the book of Hosea. And it's entirely appropriate to use this particular chapter and really the entirety of this book for a sermon on Lord's Day 33 because the repeated call that comes to us in the book of Hosea is the call to turn or to return unto our God. We see that in chapter 14, verse 1, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God. Verse 2, take with you words and turn to the Lord. If we back up into chapter 12, verse 6, we find the same thing. Therefore, turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. Another passage is chapter 6, verse 1. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He hath smitten and He will bind us up. And understand that this repeated calling is really a call to conversion. Because the most basic, the most fundamental idea of conversion is that of turning. Yes, it can be defined as the catechism defines it in terms of mortifying the old man of sin and quickening the new man. But more basically, more fundamentally, Conversion is turning away from sin, that from a negative point of view, and positively turning unto our God. And this calling does come to us as God's covenant people. And that comes out from the fact that the book of Hosea is not written to some heathen nation, but it was addressed to the nation of Israel, to the northern ten tribes, so that this Word of God comes to us as a a church, as believers, as God's covenant people. It's not just for the wicked unbeliever. And the fact that this Word to turn or to return to God comes to His people indicates that this must happen more than once. 
Yes, we can speak of an initial conversion, that very first turning away from sin, turning unto God in that hour that we first believed. And we have an example of that in Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But though, there, though we can identify an initial conversion, the fact that we're called to turn again and again and again tells us that this is something that happens more than once. This must be really ongoing, daily, moment by moment, turning away from sin, turning unto our God. And the necessity of this ongoing, continual conversion is our own sinfulness and our inclination toward sin. The inclination comes out in this book, for example, in chapter 11, verse 7. Chapter 11, verse 7, God says, My people are bent to backsliding from Me. They're prone to wandering. They're inclined toward the paths of sin. And that's true of us because we still have that old man of sin. The Catechism makes mention of that old man when it speaks of the mortification of the old. That old man is that sinful nature that we inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, that's been passed down to us that's entirely inclined towards sin. That sinful nature hates God. It hates the neighbor. And we will have that sinful nature until the day that we die. And therefore, we are often guilty of sinning against our God, even as is expressed in chapter 14, verse 1, the second half, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. There are times that we walk in the path of sin. It does not mean that we stopped being a Christian altogether, that we, we lost our salvation for a moment. That's not the idea. But as one of God's children, we have wandered away from Him. And it's on account of that inclination to sin and the fact that we do often start down the path of sin, that the Word of God comes to us and says, return unto the Lord thy God. Turn away from your sins, from your iniquities. And turn back to Him. In true faith, draw near unto your God. But now what does that look like? How does this go, the child of God might wonder? And that's what we want to focus on really in the rest of the sermon is what conversion looks like, how it works itself out. And it begins with a sorrowful confession of sin. There's really two things there. There's the sorrow of heart. And there's a corresponding confession of sin. It starts with sorrow of heart even as we're taught in the, the next prophetic book behind Hosea, in, the cha- in Joel chapter 2, for example, we see this very truth. Joel 2, verse 12, we read, Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me. So we have that same language of turning. So this is another passage talking about conversion, but now it gives us more instruction regarding what this looks like because it says, turn ye even to me with all your heart. It starts with the the heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Those are expressions of sorrow of heart. And that's emphasized even more in chapter in verse 13 where we read, rend your heart and not your garment and turn unto the Lord your God. 
It's teaching us that turning to God, conversion, starts with, begins with this sorrow of heart. And thus the catechism includes this as an element of conversion. In question and answer 89, what is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart. The catechism is not giving us a sequential order, but yet this one does truly come first. And now notably, this is a sorrow of heart that we have provoked our God. That's how the catechism continues. It's a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. So that this sorrow is not a sorrow over the consequences of sin. A man may, may very well be sorry to the point that he sheds tears But if that sorrow is simply because he's been found out, if that sorrow is simply because this is going to damage his reputation or there's going to be some effects for him on account of his sin, well, that type of sorrow is what the Apostle Paul calls in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 the sorrow of the world. It's not a godly sorrow. It's a worldly sorrow. Sorrow simply over the, the effects, the consequences of sin. That's not the sorrow we're talking about, but we're talking about a true sorrow that I've offended my God, that I've provoked Him, that, I've, that what I've done is displeasing to Him. And such sorrow comes especially from knowing that my sin is really spiritual adultery against my God. Do you ever view your sin that way, child of God? Adultery? It's what it is. And that comes out from what we have here in the book of Hosea. Why did God tell His prophet to take to Himself a wife of whoredoms, a woman who would be unfaithful to Him? Well, to teach us about the nature of our sin, that's Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. Hosea 1, verse 2. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed whoredom departing from the Lord. And then everything else that follows makes very clear that Gomer's sinfulness, her adultery against her husband, was but a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness towards Jehovah God. And that's true of our sin because this God has established His covenant with us so that we are married to Him. More specifically, we are the bride of Jesus Christ. But now, as the bride of Jesus Christ, that means when we sin, what we're doing is really going after other lovers. We make ourselves guilty of spiritual adultery when we go after the idols of this world or the idols within our hearts. Child of God, do you see your sin that way? Understand, it's only when we recognize our sin as nothing less than spiritual adultery that there will be this true sorrow. Not just because I got caught, but because I sinned against my God. 
against my bridegroom, Jesus Christ. That's where this sorrow comes from. And it's when there is this genuine sorrow over sin, this proper attitude of the heart, that it will lead to a confession of that sin. And that too is a part of where conversion begins. There's the sorrow of heart, but the sorrow of heart leads to confession of sin. And we see that in Hosea chapter 14. Verse 1 tells us to return unto the Lord our God. And then verse 2 adds this, take with you words and turn to the Lord. That is, when you return, bring words with you. And it even gives us specific words to put in our mouths to take to our God. So that the idea is, bring this prayer to your God when you return to Him. And then it goes on to give us the words. It says, say unto Him, take away all iniquity. That's a confession of sin and a request that God would forgive us of our sins. And this is teaching us this is a part of conversion. Returning to God starts with the heart, but that that sorrow of heart comes to expression. It manifests itself through our mouths and the, the words that we bring to our God. We're to confess our sins, not just generally, but specifically. Seeking forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's where conversion begins. And now in teaching this, we're really saying conversion starts with repentance. For repentance is being sorry for my sin and seeking forgiveness for that sin. And thus it's repentance that Is the starting point of conversion. The two are not synonymous. Conversion is broader, but it does certainly include repentance. What is more, this does relate to the language that we find in the Catechism, and that this does truly serve to mortify the old man of sin. Because there's nothing that strips the power of that old man of sin more than when we, be, when we are sorry for that sin and seek forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ. This is how we put to death that old man of sin. By way of repentance. But now in light of the importance of such repentance, in light of the importance of being sorry for our sins and seeking forgiveness, that raises the question, What is going to lead us to repent? Because after all, if I have sinned against the just God of heaven and earth, is that not really reason to turn and run the opposite direction? To try to get away from this God? Why would we ever turn toward the very one that we've sinned against? And the answer is because He is merciful. That's what drives repentance. The knowledge of God's mercy. And specifically the knowledge that He will receive us when we return to Him. And that especially is what the book of Hosea is trying to teach us. Because God's instruction to the prophet Hosea was not just take a wife of whoredoms who's going to be unfaithful to you. 
But his instruction is take her back. That's Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Hosea 3, verse 1, Go yet love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love flagons of wines. Hosea's love and taking his bride back was a picture of God's love for Israel and his willingness to take her back. And that's the same truth being taught for us in chapter 14, verse 4, when God says to us through the prophet Hosea, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. He heals our backsliding. That is, he forgives us of all of our sins. He does indeed take away all our iniquities. And more than that, He not only grants us His forgiving grace, He also grants us His transforming grace. He works in us. He he restores us to spiritual health. He heals our backsliding. So that this is nothing less than a promise of mercy. And it's when we apprehend this mercy by faith that we return to Him. Because if the only thing that we knew was that I I have sinned against this divine lawgiver, this just judge of heaven and earth, then I would have reason to just run away. It would be vain. It would be pointless. There's no escaping God's presence. But we would do everything in our power to suppress the knowledge of this God. So that the point we're making is the knowledge of sin all by itself does not lead to repentance. But what drives us to repent, what leads to repentance, is the truth. This God is merciful. It's the truth that when I do return by faith in Jesus Christ, His response will not be to shout at me, what was wrong with you? How could you do that to me? His response will not be to make us grovel on the floor before Him to prove that we're really sorry. Nor is His response to give us the cold shoulder at first as a sort of punishment for our sin until at last He relents. But in His mercy, He receives us. He takes us back with open arms with a loving embrace. Really, when He sees us returning in His compassion, He he runs to meet us in the way. That's His mercy. And that's what the book of Hosea is shouting out to us. And it's only when we come to see and know this by faith that we will return to Him in true sorrow of heart, confessing our sin. So do you believe this about your God, child of God? That He's merciful. 
that he will take you back. Insofar as you doubt, look to the cross of Christ. Because it's at Calvary that we have the explanation for how this just God can take us back. He is indeed just. That comes out in the book of Hosea. Most of the book of Hosea is God addressing the sin of Israel and pronouncing judgment upon them. For example, the the previous verse to the chapter that we read, chapter 13, verse 16, Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. These are words of judgment. And God is communicating that in His anger, in His wrath against sin, He will surely destroy all those who sin against Him. He's just. But the good news of the Gospel is that He's also merciful towards His own. And on account of His mercy, His his anger has been turned away from us. That's the language in chapter 14, verse 4. For mine anger is turned away from Him. And we might ask, how can that be? And the answer is because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. For God's anger against our sin was turned toward against Jesus Christ. It was at the cross of Calvary that our God poured out His fury, His wrath against our sin. Christ had to endure the punishment that we deserve for our sins. He was the object of God's fierce anger. He was the object of God's destroying wrath. And He endured that anger until God's anger towards our sin was spent, if we can put it that way. So that God can now say to us this beautiful word of Hosea 14, verse 4, For mine anger is turned away from Him. It was turned toward Christ and thus turned away from us. There's forgiveness. So that He willingly receives us when we return to Him in true faith. Believe it, child of God. Do not believe the lie of the devil. Do not believe that lie that you have to earn your way back into God's favor. Do not believe the lie of the devil that this sin or that sin was so great, so heinous, that God would never take you back on account of that sin. But believe in the mercy of God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. And by faith, hear Him say to you, I will take away all your iniquity. My anger is indeed turned away from you, child of God. And let that knowledge of forgiveness be the very truth that fills your heart with joy. And specifically a joy 
that manifests itself in a life of service unto this God. Conversion starts with a sorrow of heart that leads to a confession of sin, but conversion is broader than that sorrow of heart and confession of sin. It's broader than the truth of repentance. It includes a joyful life of conversion. And the Catechism makes that plain. In question and answer 90, again, giving us the different elements of conversion. In answer question 90, we read, what is the quickening of the new man? Here's the positive. And again, it begins with an attitude of the heart. It is a, it is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. And this joy comes from the very truth that we just covered, the truth of God's mercy toward us. This joy comes from knowing the forgiveness of sins, knowing that He does take us back though we've sinned against Him time and time again. And thus it's for good reason that the catechism speaks of joy here at this location. Because where are we in the grand scheme of things? We're in the third section. We're just beginning the third section of the catechism. We've gone over the knowledge of our sin and misery. We've covered the the good news of the Gospel and how we're delivered by faith in Jesus Christ. And now it's knowing all that, knowing everything that we've covered in the first two sections of the catechism that we have this joy. This happiness that my sins are forgiven, that I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And God does indeed want us to be happy. He wants us to rejoice in Him. That's why He calls us to do this. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So that joy for the child of God is is not something optional. It's not just a recommendation. It's not just, well, if it fits your personality, if you're a joyful person, then you should really show it. But if you're not, then it's okay. No. This comes to all of us. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. God wants us to be happy. So do you have this joy? Are you happy this morning on account of the good news of the Gospel? Insofar as it's lacking... then what we need to do is keep going back to the cross. Keep reminding ourselves that in the history of redemption, I am not Hosea. I'm Gomer. I'm the unfaithful one. But God is ever faithful. And He receives us when we return. 
He embraces us. He brings us back into His fellowship. And He does so in such a way that He still showers His love upon us as though we were never once unfaithful to Him. His love is unwavering. Child of God, take that truth and meditate upon it. Turn it over in your mind again and again and again until it sinks down into the very depths of your heart. Until it thrills your soul and there's this joy, this happiness. My sins are forgiven. I have life with this God. And let that joy then express itself in a life of service to this God. Because that too is a part of conversion. It begins in the heart. It does. But that attitude of the heart will show itself in the way that we live. And here we grab those other elements of conversion that we have not touched upon in both questions 89 and 90. So that we recognize that conversion includes turning away from sin by hating and fleeing it. That's The end of 89, what is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we've provoked God by our sins. That's where we started. But now there's this, and more and more to hate and flee from them. And we see this very thing in the book of Hosea. Chapter 14, verse 3. Part of the words that we are to take to God in confessing our sin is, This expression of a desire to put away sin. Verse 3 says, Asher shall not save us. That's a reference to the Assyrians whom God's people were tempted to rely on, to trust in for deliverance. And then it goes on, we will not ride upon horses. That's mentioned because in the Old Testament, God prohibited His people from having horses for their armies, from having a a cavalry, lest they begin to put their trust in their own strength, in their military ability capabilities. No horses. And they're saying, we're not going to rely on horses. Neither, verse 3 continues, will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our gods. This is a turning away from sin. This is God's people saying, I'm done with those things. I'm going to leave those behind. I'm, I'm turning away from that sin. This is a part of conversion. And so it must be for us to use the language of the catechism. We are to hate and flee from sin. To hate it because God Himself hates it. To hate it because it's provoking, displeasing, offensive to our God. And because He's been so faithful to me, I want to avoid being unfaithful to Him. And that then leads us to flee sin. To resist it instead of indulging in it. To say no to sin instead of saying yes to sin. And really that means fleeing temptation itself, the source, the occasion of sin. For is not our prayer, Father, lead us not into temptation. How foolish to pray that prayer. But then to be careless in our lives, in our walk, 
and willfully expose ourselves to temptations. That's folly. Instead, we pray, lead us not into temptation. And then by faith and by the grace of God, we seek to avoid those things that we know so readily ensnare us. We, we avoid those places, those things, those, those internet websites, those people that have been a snare to my soul. It's a part of conversion. Turning away from sin by hating that sin and fleeing from it. But it's not just the negative. Turning away from sin. There's the positive of turning unto God by loving and delighting in all good works. And here we draw from the second half of answer 90. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ. We've covered that. And now this, and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. And this too comes out in Hosea. But this is a part of conversion. We read chapter 12, verse 6 earlier. Now notice it in with greater understanding. Therefore, turn thou to thy God. What does that look like? Keep mercy and judgment. And wait on thy God continually. It's, it's calling for a new life of obedience. It's a part of this conversion. Same thing in chapter 14, verse 2. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto Him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. And then it adds this, so will we render the calves of our lips. And literally it's we will render, we will pay young bulls our lips. It's difficult to know exactly how to translate that. But in light of the fact that you have young bulls which are used for sacrifices, especially for the peace offering, you have our lips and the Scriptures speak of the using our lips to praise God, it's clear that what's being expressed here is a life of thankful praise to our God. And that too is a part of conversion. It's not just the turning away from sin, hating it, fleeing it, but it's turning unto God and seeking to serve Him. To live a life of, that's pleasing to this God. A life of thanksgiving and praise to Him. And it's when we do this by His grace that there will be the God-given fruits of conversion. And that's where we conclude with the fruits of conversion, with the good works that flow from this. That's where the catechism ends. The end of answer 90 concludes with a mention of good works. And question 91 takes up the question, but what are good works? And it goes on to define good works for us. Only those which proceed from a true faith. That is, faith is the the source of these good works. It's only by faith that we can live a life of good works so that the unbeliever is incapable of doing anything truly good in the eyes of our God. These works are performed according to the law of God. That is, God's law is the perfect standard of what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And if something's going to be called a good work, it must measure up, it must meet this standard 
of what is right and wrong, namely God's law. And finally, the Catechism says that they are to be to His glory, to God's glory. This is where the child of God aims. Not His own glory. Not so that others give Him the praise. But God's glory. So that He might be praised. That's a good work. And these good works are really the the fruit of our conversion. They're the product that flows from such a life. But importantly, we must recognize that this fruit is really a God-given fruit. And that's what comes out in Hosea chapter 14, verses 5-8. through Hosea chapter 14, verse 5. We read, I, God speaking, will be as the dew unto Israel. And then what follows is a number of illustrations, figures, all of which are taken from the realm of horticulture. There's plants, and these plants are flourishing. They're productive. They're fruitful. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon, that is, the the cedars of Lebanon with their deep roots. His branches shall, shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. Again, the cedars of Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. There's a picture of Israel flourishing, being productive, being fruitful, and standing behind all of it is the power of God's grace. It starts with, I will be as the dew unto Israel. And the point is that everything that follows is that God is the one making this happening. Making this happen, rather. And that's confirmed by the end of verse 8. Verse 8, God says, From me, is thy fruit found. And all this makes clear that our good works are really God-given. Now, that does not take away from the truth that we are conscious and active in a life of good works. For while there is this imagery of a tree and we speak of fruit, the child of God is different than a tree in that the child of God has a mind, he has a, a heart, a, a will, unlike a tree. A tree simply produces the fruit. There's no willingness on the part of the tree. That's different for the child of God who's active in living a life of good works. But the child of God is active in such a life only because of God's work of grace in him. A work that began with renewing us, giving us new life, that is, giving us that new man. The Catechism speaks of quickening the new man. We've been given this new life of Jesus Christ that's been implanted, infused into our hearts. And what is more, He gives us grace to to live out of that new man, to live according to that new life of Christ. He works in us the willing and the doing of that which is pleasing to our God. And thus, the Belgian Confession in Article 24 rightly teaches that really we are beholden to God for our good works. That is, God gets the credit for them. He worked them in us. 
And that's true because really conversion itself is the work of our God. We just made clear that the fruit of conversion, good works, that's God-given. But now we need to go deeper and see that conversion itself is the work of His grace. We see that truth taught here in the book of Hosea. How is it that Gomer came back? Did she come to her senses one day? Realize this is foolish and go make her way back? It's not how it went. But God told Hosea to go get her and to bring her back. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, Go yet love a woman, beloved of her friend. What does that look like? Verse 2, So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for an omer of barley and half and a half omer of barley and said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot and thou shalt not be for another man, so will I also be for thee. He goes into the house of her lover. He buys her back. He he pays everything that he has. There's a reason he has to give more than just silver. He has to give barley on top of it because he's used up all of his silver. He's giving everything that he has to bring her back. And this points to God's work of grace and how it goes for us when we return to him. It's because he himself draws us back. This is his work of grace. And now again, this does not take away from the fact that we come willingly, actively. It's not as though he he grabs us by the hair and drags us back, kicking and screaming against our will. That's not how it goes. But he does indeed draw us back with cords of love to use other language that's found in the book of Hosea. He allures us with the promise of his mercy. And he works in us powerfully by his spirit. So that conversion is really his work of grace. He's the one that turns us away from our sin back unto himself. And that then is reason to praise Him. To praise Him. To glorify Him. For making us His covenant people to begin with. For choosing us as part of the the bride of Jesus Christ. To praise Him for His work to redeem us. His unfaithful bride. By paying everything that He had. Not a bunch of silver and a bunch of barley. But He gave His only begotten Son to lay down His life for us. And in His great faithfulness, 
Though we continue to go astray, though the spiritual orientation of our heart is not always right, He pursues after us again and again and again. And draws him back, draws us back to himself with those cords of love. Congregation, let us praise this God. Let us magnify his name by lifting up our voices in song, and let us do so from a joyful heart, knowing all that he has done for us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we are astonished at thy love and thy faithfulness toward us. For we are indeed Gomer, a people bent on backsliding, a people guilty of spiritual adultery. And thus we praise thee for thy mercy. Apart from thy mercy, we would want nothing to do with thee. We would do everything in our power to suppress the knowledge of thee. But in light of thy mercy, we do come by faith in Jesus Christ with words that we take with us, asking that thou wilt take away all our iniquity. Receive us graciously. And so will we render unto thee sacrifices and praise from our lips. Hear our prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.